0: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Hey, aliens, use a coaster edition. It's Wednesday, November 23rd, 2016. On today's show, Mike Pence, the, of course, uh, vice president-elect of the United States, was booed by the audience at the Broadway show Hamilton. Was this free speech, rudeness, harassment? What was it? We discussed the first of what are bound to be many post-election kerfuffles as they play out in the wider culture. And then Arrival is a sci-fi thriller, a feminist parable, and a hit We process it and why a film built out of both unlikely and unlikely parts has struck a nerve, appears to have struck a nerve. And then finally, Billy on the Street, it's a thing, a thing we've ignored up until now. That is, we discussed the renegade man on the street interview, parody, game show, whatever it is, um, amongst ourselves, amongst the panel. um, Speaking of which, joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. Uh, Inevitably, we have business. Yes, Julia?
2: Yeah, we have two pieces of business. Number one, uh, for our Slate Plus segment this week, we will have a heated debate. Thanksgiving resolved. It is the best holiday. Julia will argue that position. Dana is a Thanksgiving greatness denier. So (laughs)
1: how dare you?
2: Get ready. Well, we'll try and drop some empirical knowledge on her in that conflict. Um, If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you should join at slate.com slash culture plus. It's a great way to listen to extra segments of our show every week and a great way to support Slate and the journalism that it does. Number two, for the holidays, we are going to be recording a call in show and we're going to tweak our format a little bit this year. We are going to do an advice show. When I shared this idea from our producers and interns with Steve Metcalf, he cackled with disbelief. Um, I'm not sure why exactly, Steve. You don't want to be an advice an advice
0: giver? I mean, ha, you know, having, you know, I don't know, being a towering monument to human achievement myself, I guess it's a natural progression to tell other people, you know, how to live.
2: Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Um, so please call in at 929 266 4914 and leave a question for the group. The advice can be cultural in nature, but does not have to be. Ask us for advice. We will strive to give you some. And uh, it may or may not be valuable, but we hope it will be entertaining. Uh, I think that's it. That's our business for this week.
0: Excellent. All right, digging in. Vice President-elect Mike Pence went to go see Hamilton uh, with his kids the other day to put a fine point on it that it probably doesn't need. Pence is an er-red state politician who often runs on values that we blue staters regard as anything but. And a performance of Hamilton, uh, the musical which reimagines the founding fathers as hip-hop performers, is the epicenter of self-regarding liberal elitism. Uh, this was matter and antimatter uh, meeting and what happened next could have been predicted. In fact, maybe maybe was predicted by the people who sent Pence in there to make a headline. Anyway, Pence was And at the end of the show, an actor read a prepared statement asking uh, the V Poetis that all people be treated with respect by the incoming administration. Was this an expression of the very rights and principles the show is about? Was it being rude? Was it harassment? What was it? Should the theater be a safe space, as Poetis tweeted, um, or should the hurly-burly of democracy follow us everywhere? Julia Turner, um, I I defer to you in all matters of uh, civic norm. Normality. What What do you think about this?
2: Well, first of all, let's just talk about poetis. Isn't it Piotis? <laughs> <laughs> President-elect of the United States? Oh, yeah, the is. other one is the poet laureate-elect. <laughs> it also sounds like an old-fashioned way of spelling fetus. Anyway, Piotis. <gasps> but um, there are so many threads to pull here, and and uh, journalists and observers spent most of the weekend on Twitter pulling various of those threads. Why don't I lay out a couple of the skeins of inquiry, and we can decide which one we want to unravel. So first, there is a question of, should Pence have been booed? Number two is, how did the show handle itself? Uh, after the curtain call, the actor who plays Aaron Burr, Brandon V. Dixon, spoke out from the stage and addressed uh, Pence to give consideration to the needs and fears of diverse Americans as, as they set the new administration in place. We can listen to that speech now.
0: You know, we had a, a, a guest in the audience this evening. <laughs> Sir, we hope that you will hear us out. And I encourage everybody to pull out your phones and tweet and post because this message needs to be spread far and wide, okay?
1: Vice President elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Music. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America, who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us.
0: Our planet. Has- or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights,
2: sir. So there's the question of whether that was appropriate for the cast and the show to do. Nobody really seems to have objected to that except for the president-elect himself. Mike Pence himself had no problem with it, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, But Donald Trump suggested that the theater was a safe space and that it was rude and that Hamilton was overrated and that the show should apologize for its uh, scolding of Pence. There was a journalism fight on Twitter about whether... Journalists were spending too much time focusing on this stupid kerfuffle about booing and spending insufficient time covering uh, the Trump University settlement, which came down on Friday evening shortly before Pence entered the theater, or the various questions that have been raised by journalistic outlets about Mm -hmm. Trump's business interests, foreign diplomats and dignitaries signing up to stay at his hotel. And, you know, we're journalists. You know, following the bouncing ball around the room and failing to really do the work of holding Trump to account because they were distracted by their love of covering all things, Hamilton. And then finally, there was the sinister conspiracy theory version of this, which the uh, which is the idea that Chief strategist Steve Bannon is such an evil mastermind that he sent Pence to Hamilton intentionally in order to distract everybody from the university, Trump University settlement. So I think those are the four main threads as, as I understand them. And I certainly believe that people have the right to boo whoever they want. But I would also describe myself as like not a booer. Like have you, how many times have you guys actually actively booed something?
1: I was thinking about this. If I had been in the theater when Mike Pence came in, what would I have done? I don't think I would have been among the booers. And I think I would have been made uncomfortable by the booing. But that doesn't mean that I would want it to be censured or eliminated from the public
2: sphere. Part of the context for that booing, which both Mark Harris and Mark Joseph Stern and Slate pointed out, is that the theater is a classically gay space. And to the degree that Pence holds retrograde views about the world, many of those are around LGBT rights. He believes in conversion therapy. Indiana became subject to boycott when he stuck up for the rights of a pizza joint to like not cater a gay wedding with pizza. Um And, you know, has been on, on the wrong side of a, a ton of issues around LGBT rights, including the most recent um, Obama administration directive around transgender bathrooms. So I do think that it's important to remember that context. And for people who are dismissing, like, who cares about booing at your elite fancy pants show? Uh, You know, pay attention to the real story. I think it is dismissive to suggest that the political speech of the people who booed Pence is... You know, puerile, or to be dismissed, or, um, you know, to to be ignored as some kind of liberal elite tantrum well, that you, that distracts from the real story.
1: I think it's worth pointing out in that context that the cast themselves ask the audience not to boo Mike Pence. So I think that's an important division to make. I was thinking about when, at what point, this controversy would have died, and I think this controversy would have died almost instantly were it not for Donald Trump's insane reaction to it and obsessing about it for the next day, which mm-hmm. is why I completely reject what was, I think, your second-to-last skein, which is that this is somehow uh, beneath journalists or people in general to be thinking or caring about. Obviously, it is not the only thing to think or care about at this moment in which we're being bombarded with all kinds of dizzyingly bizarre news about our president-elect. But to maintain that that, that his reaction does not cast a very chilling Light on free speech and artistic expression under his administration to be is just it just seems false.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for the record, I don't think I would have booed um, only because I think it's too early. An adversarial attitude of deeply suspicious and uh, committed adversarial relationship to this administration is important and important to keep up, but within some limits and some opportunity for being, uh, you know, they haven't even taken office. So something of a wait and see attitude combined with my WASP reticence probably would have kept me from from booing. Um, that said, I do think that Pence is part of a um, wing of the Republican Party that campaigns relentlessly against the prerogatives of coastal elites uh, and uses terms to describe us uh, that are openly demeaning. And if, Norms and good manners have been broken. They were broken first, I believe, on on that side of of that aisle, particular aisle. So the idea that he ought to have been treated with utmost respect walking into that particular venue, I think is is literally insane. But here's where um, I think it gets interesting is that very few people probably remember this, but... I happened to be watching on television the US Open when Bill Clinton was there towards the end of his second term. And the Monica Lewinsky scandal had played out. And even though the economy probably arguably had never been healthier, it certainly hadn't been that healthy since the late 1960s, um, Clinton was roundly booed at the US Open, which you would have thought was home turf for him. New York City, a bunch of rich people watching a tennis game. There was no discussion, if I recall at the time, like quite literally zero discussion about whether or not the crowd had the right to boo their president, whether or not they were rude to do so, whether or not this reflected some deep failing on their part. I just think people ought to be aware that something has really flipped here, and the expectation that our own rights need to be apologized for or explained um, in the face of this. Uh, incoming new authority uh, to me is very dangerous. I think that's a real change. And and um, I, I think we have to be sensitive to it.
1: Steve, although I agree with everything you just said, I think that that is just the very first level of what was disturbing about this incident and why it is worth talking about and why I do uh, oppose the idea that this is somehow a trivial distraction that we should all shut up about. And that is that Donald Trump's reaction via Twitter was not was a complete mischaracterization of what happened. It was the disinformation that scared me the most about this and made me follow this story. I think I would have dropped the story if it had just been, you know, the GOP wringing their hands about poor little Boo urns getting booed at the theater <laughs> <laughs> and, and even Donald Trump defending his vice presidential candidate. That's all, I guess, you know, seems acceptable discourse. But what it implies when the president elect disseminates disinformation, the opposite of what happened in that curtain call speech that we all just heard, and makes it sound like, I can't remember the exact t- text of his tweet, but didn't he say the disrespectful cast must apologize, something like that? That was a moment that I thought, OK, we're getting into some sort of Maoist, Stalinist territory where we're soon all going to have 10-foot tall posters of smiling Donald Trump you know, pasted up into every public space. I mean, to be able to to I guess he spent his whole campaign doing it so why should I be surprised but to be able to twist literally 180 degrees what the cast member said in the, in the statement he read on stage and make it sound like it was disrespectful when in fact it was a statement of the utmost respect and Pence I will I have to say what he said as as Mark Harris wrote in his wonderful New York Magazine reflection on all of this Pence was very boilerplate in his response but it was exactly what a politician should say he basically said I don't mind being booed. You know, he had a tough skin about it. He said that's part of being in the public sphere. And then I think he said something about in a statement on on one of the Sunday news shows, I think he said, and I really enjoyed the show, you know, wonderful, talented Mm -hmm. cast. I mean, that's all you have to do. And then it blows over, you know, so I guess the scariest thing to me about this is that there's this thin-skinned, you know, bizarre weirdo on top of a tower who's sitting obsessing about it the entire following weekend when he should be figuring out how to lead the free world. (laughs) I'm going to lose my voice again.
2: (laughs) Do you guys believe the Steve Bannon uh, evil showman mastermind distraction theory of the case? No, not at all. I think that (laughs) that goes against Trump's razor
1: law that you should go with the stupidest explanation possible. I mean, I don't Mm. think that there's any obviously in the sense that distraction is part of Trump's whole modus operandi and the whole campaign has been about him throwing garbage at us as fast as we could possibly take it. But the idea that it was this chess game by Steve Bannon or Donald Trump or anyone else. No. What about you, Steve?
0: I uh, totally agree with Dana. Um, th- that said that there's a, an, an immediate, immediate cynical appropriation of any such pseudo event um, to the purposes of this distraction. Um, and I think that there have been instances where Trump's razor cuts the other way. And it does does seem as though a headline is uh, a sideshow is created to prevent another headline from getting more play. But um, in this instance, I think it was a series of, of rando events.
2: The Fundamentals of the incident are not that confusing. Like, yes, you I can agree. hold all these things in your head at the same time. You can not be a booer, agree that people have the right to boo, respect the statement of the people, decry the tweets of the president-elect, who seems to be having a chilling effect on speech, while also acknowledging that the conflict in his business interests and the settlement around Trump University are dismaying. Uh, we
1: have to be able to balance all those things. And apparently a lot more things that are going to be coming. I mean, I just have to mm-hmm. say, in general, I don't, appreciate the whole tradition of online shaming of people who aren't paying attention to the things that you think they should be paying attention to. And while it's perfectly legitimate for example to question the judgment of news organizations that put the Hamilton story above the fold and the Trump U story beneath the fold, that's a completely different question from whether we should be caring or talking about mm-hmm. these things at all. And it seems to me right. that the only uh, the only choice of all of us that we all now have to be very alert citizen journalists who Yes, choose what to pay attention to because you just because you can't pay attention to everything at once, but consider all of it important information. Well, oh,
0: you- and before and before we turn this completely into the political gap fest, I do have to make two quick points because I, I don't I really don't want them to get lost in discussions like this. The first is that we're not talking about a silent majority. She's going to end up winning the popular vote by two million votes. Her vote total is now going to approach Obama's in 2012. That means this is a loud minority, not a silent majority. We can't report it as a silent majority majority, because that's not coincident with the facts. And the second point that I think is absolutely critical is let's define bubble precisely. Bubble isn't the fact that you don't know what's going on in the mind or world of your political opponent. A bubble is an epistemic chamber in which you don't have contact with reality. That's what a bubble is. I mean, I think people have every right to live in their own cultural sphere and to be not indifferent to the suffering of their fellow citizens, they never have that right, but to be relatively ignorant of how other people from other cultural points of views uh, feel, um, as long as they are in touch with reality. Like a bubble should be about one's refusal to encounter or confront facts, not a refusal to constantly prove your liberal bona fides by um, empathizing with people who in fact hate you.
2: Yeah completely <laughs>
1: <laughs> she pondered long and hard
0: all right well um no doubt we'll get some uh feedback on um, going down the trump hole uh come yell at us at facebook.com slash culture all right let's move on Rival stars Amy Adams as a linguist, you had me at hello, who's brought in to communicate with aliens who are hovering in giant pods above 12 sites spread uh, out across the globe. This sci-fi fable is many things a blockbuster is. It's expensive looking and built upon a pretty high concept. Um, but it's also many things a blockbuster isn't. It's quiet, it's paced, it's chilling, it's thoughtful, it's possibly feminist, possibly deeply feminist. I'm curious to hear the panelists' thoughts on that. Critics and audiences both seem to like it. Uh, I should say it's directed... By Dana, I'm going to go with Denis Villeneuve. But am I going to be laughed for pronouncing Denis it that
2: Villeneuve.
0: way? Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Denis Villeneuve, or not uh, Dennis and, Villeneuve? Uh, <laughs> there we go. I'm going to
2: use my Adelaide voice from Guys and Dolls. Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Uh, and it's
0: written by a man named Eric Heiserer. Um, it deserves credit. I think it's a, in many ways a very nicely written movie. It stars, Jer- in addition to Adams, it stars Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker. Why don't we listen to a clip? Everything you're doing there, I have to explain to a room full of men whose first and last question is how can this be used against us? Kangaroo. What is that? In
1: 1770...
0: Captain James Cook's ship ran aground off the coast of Australia, and he led a party into the country, and they met the aboriginal people. One of the sailors pointed at the animals that hop around and put their babies in their pouch, and he asked what they were, and the aborigines said, kangaroo. It wasn't
1: until later that they learned that kangaroo means, I don't understand.
0: I can show that for now. And remember what happened to the aborigines. A more advanced race nearly wiped them out. It's a good story. Thanks.
1: It's not true, but it proves my point. I'm glad we played that clip because I had to ask you guys about what I consider the biggest mystery of this movie, which is what accent is Forrest Whitaker trying
2: to do? Oh, my God. Yeah. It points at, like, Boston. It points at Southern. And then Amy and Adams. kind of Caribbean sometimes. She plays this linguist who can speak, like, at the drop of a dime, like, Mandarin and Farsi. Farsi. And just, like, she squints at alien squiggles and is like, mm, yes, I understand. <laughs> and then she, like, never remarks on the—I feel like the her proper scientific and academic response would have been to, like, put him in a— tent covered in plastic wrap <laughs> yeah. and be like let's like <laughs> let's just really like can we i want i want to like pl- replay your audio files and like clip them <laughs> crack the code yeah
0: i i, I am All right, i this review's up, uh... over right <laughs> <laughs> am i picking should i feel silly for having like this movie dana
1: Oh, no, I greatly enjoyed this movie. I mean, I, I I understand all critiques of it. I think it is limited in its its scope and ambition, but I think it accomplishes what it sets out to do extremely well. It's great to watch. I mean, if you are a person who is interested in writing and language, it's great to watch Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner sit around deciphering strange alien writing symbols for two hours. It couldn't, couldn't be more fun in the movies.
2: Hero linguist. Yeah. I did not like this movie as much as the people I saw it with and maybe as much as you I found it to be, um, you know, as alien encounter movies go, the sort of like 20-teens version of an alien encounter movie, and there have been a lot of them lately. There was, I mean, there were no aliens in The Martian, but there was sort of the the scientific sweep of The Martian. There was Interstellar. There was, um, gravity had no aliens, but it had space and, and lots of science. Um, even Independence Day 2, I mean, actually this movie was like, a serious, elegant version of Independence Day 2. Like the the visuals were very similar, these big, mysterious um, visit sites, and then the kind of like rounded squiggles that a attractive female linguist must decipher. Like there are a lot of similar (laughs) plot points. Um, In the sweep of those movies, I think I may have liked this one the best. Um, I feel like the themes of it around understanding and and how you can achieve it were uh, novel and well executed. I really liked the production design of it when Amy Adams' character, Louise Banks, is first brought to one of the sites where the spheres, they're not really spheres, they're like little fingernail oh boy, They're like
1: lentils in the sky. Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, the the production design of the camp that's been set up very quickly to analyze and assess this, the kind of hastiness of the tents, these fluorescent lights in these very provisional-seeming spaces, the disorientation, the lack of daylight, um, which is presumably for confidentiality reasons, but it's just like, you know, they're in this gorgeous field in Montana and they're like in these hunkered, gross spaces. Um, Felt very striking and new. Like, usually in these movies, you're in like a really sleek, like whooshing door type, you know, space with lots of kind of um, minority report style, like swipe screen technology. And the technology here all felt nicely mechanical like there's a there's a key role that a classic um, scissor lift like construction type device like the sort of thing that men go up into like change the light bulbs and street lights plays and like actually getting the scientist to encounter the alien orb Um, and I loved that like the prosaicness of the production design even the ship itself doesn't have like shiny sides it looks like it's been beat up as it's kind of you know, journeyed through space, however far it's come to get to Earth. I loved all of that. Um, but the movie is rife with dopey coincidences that don't make any sense. There is a bunch of like maternal hooey that make my face twist up with agony when you call this a feminist movie. Like, I think this movie is mm. super unfeminist in it or, or plays with mawkish mothery crap in a way that did in a not, way that
1: Gravity did as well, actually. It has that in common with Gravity. Yeah, is the idealization like of motherhood. Another fucking redhead in
2: the sky who's like, <laughs> my baby. Oh, my God. I mean,
0: wow, kill me okay. now.
2: And then the, the movie has a central puzzle which sort of excuses the maternal stuff when you understand it. Like it is actually much cleverer about the maternal mm-hmm. hoo-ha than... Um, either Gravity or even Interstellar, there's like the whole point of meeting the aliens is to go through space time to a magical bookcase to talk to your <laughs> now dead daughter. Like the 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 bonds with your long lost daughters is tricky, and then but then even once that puzzle becomes smart, the whole thing ends with this like montage of mawkish melodrama and like oh the intimate moment under the sheets like hooey <laughs> I was not having it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that the ending is disappointing, except that I did think that the temporal puzzle that the ending solves was satisfying. Like, as yes. science fiction, as actual science right. fiction, like an imagination of something otherworldly coming to our world, I thought this movie was more original than all the other ones yes. that you just noticed. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Also, its yeah. focus on writing is just unusual and fascinating. And yes. the, the design, I was reading a little bit about the the, the writer of the movie, Steve. And he—it's based on a short story, but he had to design. He himself has a background in linguistics and had to help design those um, those letters, you know, along mm-hmm. with the, the production designers. These these kind of spherical pieces of writing that, according to the movie, express whole ideas and not just represent
0: sounds. Which I like, thought was really cool. They look like coffee cup rings, like that, like you just left. Yeah, exactly. Like,
1: the aliens use no coasters.
0: All right, can I defend the movie now, please?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> all right. So uh, here's how I thought it—it it was possibly. A- Plausibly a feminist uh, parable. The, um, you know, she's basically brought in to communicate with these aliens to decipher what they want. Nobody knows. They seem to have a kind of linguistic, um, um, you know, basis for communication among themselves. Earthlings can't figure out what it is. Um, you know, first of all, I mean, just at a most basic level, I mean, this is scarcely clearing any kind of a bar. But you know, the movie, the, it's a blockbuster movie about aliens coming to Earth that stars a woman actress who by and large doesn't um cede heroism to the male co-star um and furthermore you know very pointedly men military men keep wanting to interpret everything inscrutable things or semi-scrutable thing that these aliens do as martial as warlike and challenging and she keeps saying she keeps trotting out these i think for a blockbuster movie quite teasingly constructed linguistic riddles that show how language can be misinterpreted, how we impose upon it a set of preconceptions in order to, for example, mistake the word gift for the word weapon, or in some cultures they may... It also had this sort of kind of interesting kind of multi-culti kind of Pomo theory aspect, which draws on a very deep tradition of... You know, let's be frank. Colonial Europeans encountering native peoples, and um, and very often massacring and eliminating them, but also sometimes finding a common language through you know very quite elaborate acts of of, of mutual deciphering. Um, and I thought that that was feminist. It's like like don't assume that they mean weapon. Don't assume they're here to kill and eat us or colonize us, whatever. Secondly, I thought um, the way in which it isn't feminist, Julia, according to you, is that it indulges in mawkish maternity I thought of the movies that play with the the short French film that I love la jete which which is one of the original great sci-fi movies to deal with the idea of time becoming unstuck and nonlinear um, this one I thought did a very good job did a really honorable job and without giving anything away i I do think it was I mean I hope we're not at the point where a woman can't play a a, a You know, a satisfied mother without it seeming anti feminist. I mean, her professional bona fides and her heroism at the heart of this story have been pretty well established. And then there's just a tricky, interesting, undermining approach to her maternity that played in thematically. I found the movie by and large satisfying. I went and saw it with my 13 year old daughter, a raging feminist. She thought it heteronormed out in ways at the end that made her squirm a little bit. But at the end, we both gave it a totally solid B+. Plus. We couldn't quite nudge it up to an A-, minus, but if every blockbuster were this intelligent and interesting, um, we'd live in a better world.
1: I have to add to that just quickly, Steve, that you keep saying it's a blockbuster, and I would it has been a surprising success, but it's actually a mid-budget movie. It had a $47 mid-budget. million. I agree. Dollar, and that's, that's important. I'm not just trying to be a, a nerd and correct you, but that seems important because... It would be nice if the movie ecosystem contained more mid-budget movies with yes. female heroines and interesting ideas in them.
2: Totally, I, I I was nodding my head instead of knitting my eyebrows at you, Steve, for for most of that spiel. I I, I do. It's much smarter than the other much more expensive movies that I named. Uh, You'll be surprised to learn, including Independence Day too. Um and it's <laughs> and it looks pretty great for a movie of that size. I mean, there aren't th- and and it is much better for not having a bunch of, like, pixelated whooshing, flaming things in and the last the last, last twenty five minutes is not all warfare and explosions far from it, and the last twenty five minutes has all kinds of interesting, like puzzle unlocking linguistic and temporal reveals that are super great. And if the movie had ended about twelve minutes earlier than it did, I would be. It would definitely have knocked it up to like an A minus for me. I think really. Um, but the oh, interesting. The, but I do object. It's cool to see a woman heroine. It's cool to see a movie issue a final act of explosions. I mean, that to me is like the most radical and exciting thing about the movie. Although I'm not sure it's feminist to issue explosions. It just seems good. Um, I resist the idea. I mean, I think part of what made me itchy about it is the sort of classic difference feminism notion of like if only the women were in charge it would be peace love and understanding women just have an innate desire to connect i think that's fucking hooey and Mm. i liked about this movie that it didn't render those things explicit. It's it's presented as part of her character, part of her approach to language. And Jeremy Renner agrees with her
1: on that. Like, he's a peace-loving scientist mm-hmm. guy. He's an ally.
2: <laughs> um, But, you know, the movie it doesn't suggest that because of her ovaries, she's able to connect with the, you know, alien pods in a special way or anything like that. But But somehow that gloss paired with the way that the maternal stuff plays out just made me a little itchy. Made me a little itchy, mm-hmm. that's all. I agree that you should go see it if you have any inclination to like this kind of movie. Yeah, even if it's, you just
1: like Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, just... it's a hundred percent worth seeing.
2: Yeah, and I like—I am enjoying my disputations with it. It is a hundred percent worth watching and worth thinking about, which is more than you can say for a lot of these movies.
0: Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Um, all right. Well, we basically liked it. Um, it's a rival. It stars Amy Adams. Uh, it's in wide release. Check it out. We all think—we uh, all think it's worth your time to do so. All right. Moving on. Billy Eichner is a veteran of the Upright Citizens Brigade, the comedy troupe. He created a series of viral videos uh, that then became a TV show. It's now on True TV. It's called Billy on the Street. Billy on the Street is a, I don't even know how to describe it exactly. It's a kind of sort of game show, but not really at all. It's an excuse for Eichner to be absurdist and for New Yorkers to react gamely to his absurdity. It's a man on the street interview parody show. Um, Julia, help me out here.
2: I'm just so curious what you guys thought of it. This show has been, like, one of my favorite things to Google random clips of for a couple years. It makes me laugh so, so, so much. And it, um, but I've never thought about it critically at all. And it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because he's so mean to randos. And I don't like when people are mean to anybody, much less poor randos on the street. And yet, despite how mean he is. The show doesn't seem mean-spirited, and I find that to be its central mystery. And I'm so curious whether you guys found this appealing, funny, or repulsive.
1: Wow. Okay. I have I have a lot to say to that. But first, I think we should hear a clip of the show so people can know what we're talking about. So here's a clip from the first episode of the fifth season, which just began, which features Billy Eichner and John Hamm running around the streets of Manhattan asking people the question that you will hear.
0: Hey guys, it's Billy. You know, in the years since we played the critically acclaimed game, would you have sex with Paul Rudd? Television and the country at large have gotten far more progressive and forward-thinking about such issues. So, in an attempt to stay current and stay ahead of some inevitable pseudo-highbrow HBO series about living as a threesome, I'm about to hit the street with Emmy Award winner Jonathan Ham to play a new game I like to call "Would You Have a Threesome with Me and John Ham?" Are you ready, John? I am. Let's go. Miss for a dollar. Would you consider a threesome with me and John Ham? <laughs> Hello, hi. Yes, sorry. Uh, a threesome with me and John Ham would you have one for a dollar yes it's very progressive i'm gay you're black you're plus size he's john ham he has a sag award it's all happening he doesn't have an oscar though that's right good point miss for a dollar would you have a threesome with me and john ham uh if i didn't have to tell my husband your husband would be fine we'll with you know. having no sex with john Hamm. Show. if he were yes. allowed to watch then maybe oh okay this is good we're making progress can we get him yes. on the phone yes yeah All right.
1: So, Julia. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) No, actually, this this may be just me. When we do TV shows for this show, I always try to watch more than one episode because I want to get some kind of breadth. I don't want to judge something on a single episode alone. And obviously, in the case of, you know, television that builds up over time, you have to get the sense of what a show is by exposing yourself to it a bit. That said, I was not able to tolerate more than one half-hour episode of Billy Eichner on the street. I found this show, and maybe it's just the moment I'm in or the country's in or what, but I found it so hideously boring, cruel, ugly, and embarrassing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I'm actually amazed. I'm not judging, I'm not judging, but I'm amazed this makes you laugh, Julia. I mean, just the pure visuals of it. Okay. I know Billy Eichner's gay, so I suppose that suppose that supposedly makes it more alternative and okay or something. But just the visual of two White guys running around the streets of New York, running up to everybody, shoving microphones in their face and asking if they want to have sex with them. I just I felt harassed by this show and I felt sorry for the people they accosted. Granted, I'm sure all those people had to sign releases to be on the show. So in some way, they agreed to be on it. But I'm thinking in particular of that young Eastern European woman. She sounds like she has a Polish accent or a Czech accent or something that they stop when she's in the middle of her day. And she comes within one inch of just screaming, get the hell out of my face, which is what I would scream if they came up to me. And again, this could just be me, but this show made me feel like I wanted to hide in a hole. And I actually had to turn it off several times during the one half hour episode to take a break and get some tea because I just couldn't tolerate it anymore.
2: All right. So not a fan. Steve, where do you come down?
0: <laughs> I'm the other I'm the other hair in the uh, rifle scope here. I mean, this is... Uh... I found it obnoxious on on so many different levels. I mean, two two main levels. The first is that, you know, I I've always disliked even going back to that Daily Show that humor in which someone is put in an excruciatingly awkward position. A real person is put in an excruciatingly awkward position, and the joke is, you know, kind of watching them wriggle out of it. You know, putting ordinary people under the gun. Don't enjoy that aspect of it at all. I hate the other aspect of it at all, which is it's. Absolute immersion in and apparent worship of um, pop culture and the ref frame frames of reference of pop culture and its obvious slavish love of celebrity because of the way it interacts with celebrities when they're brought onto the show um, and when you redouble those things against one another so that you force ordinary people to react to celebrities. Um, Billy Agner strikes me as a human being who literally couldn't exist. He would find no oxygen in the world if he weren't um attention getting in a way. Um so I hate it on that level too. I dislike everything about the show, Julia.
2: <laughs> I feel like that pop culture obsession is the joke. Like that's the character. I was gonna say, although I agree I know Steve, but the the eating, is I, somebody that, is part I'm, of the
0: joke. But that move but that move of like I'm going to excuse my own ugliest quality by then turning around and claiming it's just shit eating irony, it to me is is like that one's that one has to to the extent we're ending any euros here let's 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 end that one too please
2: i don't know man i wish you guys had watched more back episodes of it there are so many that are so funny and i uh, like the the man on the street piece of it is the part that makes me more uncomfortable um because i always hate those things like i basically i have been mystified by my own delight in this show for the like couple years that i've occasionally watched bits of it and i was hoping you guys could explain to me why the this man on the street thing is different and okay but i guess i'm not going to get those answers from you so i will see if i can think my way through to them um but the pop culture piece like i feel like that is the whole point is that he is like playing this maniacal um Person who's obsessed with his own worldview and re- reacting in just like a comically uh, over the top and unwarranted way to people who don't share his like exact opinion about um, Matthew Modine or whatever. And that piece strikes me as like obviously parodic in a way that's fine and funny and like a useful lance at the boil of that obsession generally on TV. The man on the street stuff. I can't really explain it and I can't totally defend it. But the the closest I can come is the idea that he's the butt of the jokes ultimately is the character that he himself is playing. And the thing that's uncomfortable about that is that some of the New Yorkers he accosts seem game. Some know who he is. Some seem game but mystified uh, and some seem irritated. And he usually moves on pretty quickly from the irritated ones. The the um, Eastern European woman that you mentioned is one of the few ones where he really engages with someone who's like pushing back at his shtick. Um, and if the show were all that, I agree, it would be much less pleasant to watch. That certainly wasn't my favorite part of this episode. But just, I can't, I can't explain it. The The energy, the like speed of it, the like full commitment to the absurd conceits of it, um, like the names that he has for all of his game shows that he does, uh, which is like in, in an episode with Anna Kendrick, he quizzes Anna Kendrick about what would Katy Perry's cat Kitty Perry care about? Or like, does does Katy Perry's cat Kitty Perry care about this thing? And then he gives her 60 seconds and just lists a bunch of things and asks her whether Kitty Perry cares about those things. And she says yes or no. And then she's victorious and he awards her with these like crazy paper mache prizes that his production department designs. And he gives her the apostrophe from Lupita Nyong'o's name and she does a whole shtick where she makes fun of Anne Hathaway. I don't know. It just makes me laugh. Like it makes me laugh so much. I I I it may I may be tossed out of this podcast forevermore. Well,
1: you know, I was reading. I mean, some of the some of the criticism and praise of it. The critics that like it, they say things like, "Curiously, it has a a good heart underneath all the smarm on the surface," or or something like, "He's not an insult comic." Billy Eichner is not an insult comic. I don't really quite get how he's not an insult comic because it seems like most of the humor on the show is supposed to derive from the very uncomfortable feeling of encounter that you're talking
2: about. Yeah.
1: But you tell me, how is he not an insult comic?
2: Well, I think the thing that's tricky is if you watch the show and if you watch enough of the show, all of those incidents add up over time to someone who is mostly making fun of himself and does not take himself seriously at all. Like part of the conceit of this first episode of season five is that he is like a little bit fancier and more of an acclaimed comic than he ever has been in the um, rabble-scrabble First couple of seasons. And so, at one point, he like makes a joke about how he's like, I was profiled in The New Yorker. And he's like, his rising stature as a comedy darling is part of the thing he's making fun of about himself. So if you watch all of these encounters add up and you see over time that most of them are kind of goofy and good-natured uh, and that always, always the thing he's making fun of is himself. It leaves you with the f- clear feeling that these people aren't the butt of the joke when you see a lot of it. That doesn't mean that accosting people in New York is any less weird, I mean, maybe it just mm. happens
1: to be that because the theme of the show that I watched was this thing about "Will you have sex with us? Something about it just it's, it struck me as 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 deeply creepy, and it wasn 't that i I necessarily think all these people are having a horrible day and that they're i'm not i'm not sobbing for the people that he's stopping in the street, but I don't want to see them squirm uncomfortably it's not entertaining, mm.
0: yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, one thing I will say in defense of the show is to the extent it stars New York City. Uh, I love that aspect of it. I do. I mean, at the end of the day, how can you not walk away just in love with New Yorkers and the aplomb and wit and indifference with which they treat a maniac with a microphone?
2: I think that is part of it, that it, it, he's like a caricature of a New York type and these more n- normal New York types are just like... That's part of life. Some rando runs up and screams at you like that's just walking through New York City. Something some insane shit's going to happen to you day by day. Um, and that, that that is part of what makes it feel different. I'm like, I'm going to go to Alabama and interview the like municipal director of cows and just make him look like an asshole on national television um, is part of what makes it add up over time to something that feels less hostile and horrible. But yeah, mostly the questions are not asking people to have sex with him in most of the episodes.
1: I can see why fellow comedians enjoy working with Billy Eichner. I will say that he is I am sure he's good as a sketch comic. He has a a quick wit in the sense that he can come come back with a quick comeback. I don't think I laughed a single time during the half hour Are that I you watched even the show. You've been broken by this election, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that I was impressed by his, I don't
2: know what you'd call it, his improvisatory aplomb. Can I can we like crowdsource to the listenership can we get them to put on the Facebook page like two Billy Eichner if there are other fans out there and I'm not alone among the Culture Cat listenership, can we solicit requests for good Billy Eichner segments to try and convince Dana and Steve that this might be funny sometimes on the Facebook page and will you guys commit to watching at least one additional segment of the show if recommended. I demand by our a listeners? salary.
1: I must be on the clock when watching further episodes <laughs> of Billy on the
2: street. <laughs> uh, all right. That was pretty noncommittal, but I still I still think we should do it. Wait, can we say one last thing and we'll go out with the sound of the theme song of the show, which is so hilarious? Sure. yeah. Steve, do you
1: feel like we're getting a whole glimpse into the abyss of Julia Turner's soul that we never had before? <laughs> I'm
2: just laughing thinking about the show. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me laugh so much. I really can't think of anything else that were like the laughs per minute. Is so dense and high. I just (laughs) am so sad for you guys that you didn't enjoy it.
0: I've you've never in the history of this show you've never loved anything as viscerally as you love Billy on the Street. I think
2: I may never have hated anything as viscerally. I wouldn't go that far. It's not like I mean, it's like not my favorite thing to the degree where I've like bothered to watch all the episodes completely or ever endorsed it or anything like that like it's not an obsession of mine in any way i've only seen bits and pieces of it but when we considered doing it this week i was like oh yeah every time i see that i love that let's do that let's talk about it and it also makes me feel a little weird that i love it so much it's, it's <laughs> i'm not definitely... even talking
0: about how you would rate it on a scale of one to ten i just mean uh, 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 in regards to how much of your humanity it brought to the surface <laughs> my so-called humanity <laughs> i'll enough. leave it there all right, it's Billy on the street. You can find it on the internet or on television. Um, come give a shit, me and Dana shit for how little we get it. or care about it, um, because I know you all love it. Um, all right, moving on. Billy on the street. Ooh, 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 ooh. He's making dreams come true. Billy on the street. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have?
1: Uh, I'm going to endorse a whole person, a whole writer, anything by her. And I'll name a few specific things. Um, The writer Sarah Kenzior, who I started following on Twitter around toward the end of the, the election because I was just seeing retweets from her that were very interesting, started to look into who she was, then listened to her on a podcast. Now I'm reading her book. And uh, and I think she has a really important and necessary take on what's what's happening right now in America. So she's she's a journalist who also has a degree in I don't know if it's political science or history, but her specialty was dictatorships. She wrote on Putin and other authoritarian dictatorships. She lives in St. Louis, so she's in the, one of the reddest states and writing from the middle of a red state. And she has this book called The View from Flyover Country, which could be one thing I could endorse. But if you don't want to read a whole book, she also has a really really excellent essay that's circulating online right now that we'll link to about dictatorships and what to be aware of when you may be descending into one, which I don't think is an exaggeration to say is really something to worry about right now. And uh, she also did a really, really good interview on a podcast that I didn't know previously called Who, What, Why, uh, where she talks for about 20 minutes about her experience studying dictatorships and what kind of trends she sees and, you know, sort of her scary predictions for the future. So Sarah Kenzior, if you're on Twitter, follow her on Twitter. If you feel like reading her book, read The View from Flyover Country. And if not, um, the Who, What, Why podcast episode is a great way to get some of her ideas.
0: Fantastic. Um, uh, Yeah, I really admire her uh, work. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
2: Uh, Well, I, maybe like some of you guys or our listeners, have been struggling with the question of what to read before bed in the weeks since the election. And I have settled upon an unorthodox choice. Sibley's birding basics, how to identify birds using the clues in feathers, habitats, behaviors, <laughs> and sounds. So regular listeners to this show will know that I'm a sometime bird watcher. Um Sibley is like a modern-day Audubon. Essentially, if you're a birder, you have a bird guide, it's full of pictures of birds. Um Sibley David Sibley is an illustrator and and bird nerd who has essentially reinvented the guide with his own really beautiful illustrations of birds and is just like kind of the modern bird dude. This book, Birding Basics, is this very slender volume about how to watch birds, which is something that the bird books don't ever tell you. They just give you the identifiers for the particular birds. And I'm someone who's always had a little bit of shame about my fondness for the particulars of birding. I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the Central Park birdwatching documentary, I think with Laura Helmuth. One of the things that birders do is keep these lists and constantly try to identify birds and like not just watch a bird in the wilderness, but also um, figure out what kind of bird it is. And the interest in taxonomy and list making is something I've always felt a little bit of shame about because it it seems like slightly um i don't know like a little 19th century like let's make sure we identify like we know what group everybody belongs in right there's something a little icky about that and then there's also something just a little non-buddhist about like why not just stand in the middle of the forest and watch the individual animals frolic and observe and enjoy their behavior like why are you trying to constantly cross-reference them with this guide and put them on a list um so essentially i suffered from birding shame in this book, which I would not recommend to an actual beginning birder because it's like too complicated, but I would recommend it to someone who has a you know, a bird feeder in their backyard and a, a light interest in watching these creatures, uh, it kind of changed the way I thought about birding, is that it pointed out something I've never really thought about about birding and about the impulse towards identification, which is that each bird is a puzzle or like a little bit of deductive reasoning. So that what you're doing every time you identify a bird is essentially making an argument. Like you're, you're, you're making a case and gathering facts and then using those facts to make an argument to yourself. And you are the ultimate arbiter of whether your argument is a good one. Like, did I really nail the details that make it clear that this is a white-throated sparrow and not just a house sparrow? Um, But that notion that bird birding is essentially fact-finding and like deductive reasoning Closed some loop in my mind and like connected it to journalism and our current factless universe and the notion that the rigor and rhythm of honestly trying to connect details and derive meaning from the facts and observations of the world like felt epiphanic and really exciting. Oh my to God, read you're about. like
1: Amy Adams in Arrival. It
2: all <laughs> came together in your mind in a single round character. Yeah, it was like a coffee stain of burning, <laughs> of burning epiphany. And whether or not I think about birding that way for the rest of my life, it was just kind of beautiful to see how this man who's devoted himself to the study of these creatures and who really thinks about perception and, um, you know, he also talks a lot about how, like, the angle that you're watching from or the light that you're looking in can affect the way a bird is perceived. Like, the temperature can make a bird—it's really all about how to be observant, how to be rigorous with yourself about what you've observed and what it signifies— and then how to derive meaning from the world and it is the perfect thing to be reading this week and there's probably about four people out there who are who would also find it so but i found such sucker in reading it that i wanted to share the experience with our listeners and suggest that if you are a kind of like beginning birder not a not a neophyte birder, birder but someone who like owns a pair of binoculars and or has a bird feeder and like tries to look at and identify birds about once a month, I think that you would enjoy this book. So again, it's called Birding. It's called Sibley's Birding Basics by David Allen Sibley.
1: Can I just jump in and say, while you were talking, I was looking at some images from this book, just scrolling through some David Sibley paintings or drawings or whatever they are of birds, and they're incredible. He's an amazing illustrator. I mean, it, the book seems worth it just for that alone.
0: Um, that sounds amazing. Um, so I'm going to double down on Dana's um, endorsement and uh, similarly uh, endorse a person for similar reasons, the uh, Yale historian Timothy Snyder he wrote a book called Bloodlands um, about the um, areas in between, somewhat nebulously bordered areas between um, uh, Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia, in which liquidation of native populations was was massive and in many instances, I think, relatively undocumented. Um, because it was so disorganized. Anyway, he is a a, a chief historian of Central and, and Middle Europe and the Holocaust, um, and he, on his Facebook page, has a list of 20 things one can do in the face of a possible descent into um, totalitarianism. And for people who find my language and Dana's language extreme, I think you should beware that people who study this for a living and have spent a lifetime studying it for a living um, don't believe that any of this language is is exaggerated or there's a kind of you know panic um, or hysteria being unleashed at all. but um, it's an incredible list. and um, in it he, um, he says well, people asking are asking him what to read, and he points to Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt, which is an incredible book. Obviously, 1984 by George Orwell, but he points to an essay by Vaclav Havel called The Power of the Powerless, which I coincidentally read about six months ago for the first time. It's a profoundly moving document for the reason for the simple reason that you know, Havel wrote it. I think at least parts of it in jail, but certainly all of it while being massively persecuted by the, um, the Czech state and, and through the instruments of the Czech state by the Soviet apparatus. And, um, and it, it's such an expression of what essentially the, not only the power of the powerless, but just the absolutely unquenchable yearning for freedom that people have and how they know that they want it. And they believe it exists, even when it's being systematically, maybe especially when it's being systematically denied them. And uh, it's it's really an extraordinary piece of writing. And um, it, it's really, I think it's, it's mandatory reading, whether or not the boot is about to um, descend on your own neck.
2: He's fantastic. And he actually wrote a really great uh, essay for us over the weekend called Him. And I won't say more about it to, so as to not spoil the conceit of it, but uh, it's certainly worth a read.
0: Yeah, uh, it, that is a great piece, um, Julia. And it's so psyched that he appeared in Slate. Um, but anyway, so and then I want to full-throatedly, bringing it back to pop culture, endorse Happy Valley, the British TV series, crime drama TV series that June Thomas has uh, gone on about over the years. I finally gave in and watched it. And I have to say, and I, and I don't say this lightly, but it ascended to the same plateau as classic era Prime Suspect. Ooh. It did it. Where do you see it? Is it on BBC
1: America?
0: Netflix, uh, streaming on Netflix. Uh, the season, I only watched the series one, which I think is about six episodes, but it got there. It got there for a couple of different reasons. I mean, it, it's 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 similar, right? In that it's um, written and created by a woman showrunner, as was Prime Suspect, who does the lion's share of the writing, and whose creative you know, imagination is kind of everywhere in it and on it. And it stars um, an actress who's playing a police, in this case, sergeant, um, a policewoman who's, uh, you know, persecuted by sex, departmental sexism and forwarded sort of at many terms, but prevails anyway, whose acting is transcendent. At the, By the end of the series, you really think, I did not think anyone could get in that circle with Helen Mirren. But she fucking did it. So her name is Sarah Lancashire. The show's creator is Sally Wainwright. Um, uh, I mean, one wouldn't even need to think about this. It's incidental to it, but also wonderful is that nothing has ever cleared the Bechtel test uh, with more um, room than uh, but by greater distance than this TV show. Um but it's it's totally gripping it's beautifully done it's smartly produced it's suspenseful it's uh popcorn you know to the max but also smart 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 um stick with it it got better and better and better and by the end uh, it just completely had me uh happy valley yeah it's it's like i i give it a full 10 all right uh julia thank you so much
2: thanks
1: steve thanks dana thanks steven
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liktai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the panoply network the culture gap fest of course is part of the panoply network and you can check out an entire roster of like shows at itunes.com slash panoply our twitter feed is at slate cult fest for julia turner and danny stevens i'm Stephen Metcalf. thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon